Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I am going to be discussing tax-exempt foundations with William K. of ecofascism.com. William, are you there? I am. Excellent. All right, uh, so we're kind of bouncing around a lot of different ideas, uh, uh, fascism, tax-exempt foundations, um, and I think that the, what we kind of discussed is that basically there seems to be a group of very, very wealthy people, uh, maybe connected to uh, an old, uh, what, what has been called the aristocracy in the past. Uh, and so we just wanted to maybe start off the show with kind of a general uh, description or discussion of, of what is the aristocracy and how does it work and, and is it related to these foundations? Well, the first point is that America does not have an aristocracy. America has an oligarchy. Both of those words are problematic. But an aristocrat is someone who has been tapped on the shoulder by a king and given a specific title. You could say that, you know, the, the Kennedys are starting to appear like an aristocracy, mm-hmm. but they're a long way short of the things that you find in Europe, where there are actually kings and queens and dukes and earls and viscounts and things like that. So you have to keep those ideas separate. Certainly, environmentalism has at its nucleus both the European aristocracy and a lot of these wealthy inheritor families from the United States, particularly from the Northeast. But the families from the Northeast, although they're quite often intermarried uh, into the European aristocrats, are of a different constituency. I think a lot of the difficulties people have with some of these concepts is a view that they are aristocrat- the aristocracy are a thing of the past, uh, they're anything but that. I'll give you two or three examples of contemporary aristocrats. One, uh, there's the Duke of Westminster. And amongst, this is a family that came over uh, on the boat with William the Conqueror a thousand years ago. They have over 500,000 acres of real estate around the world, including the United States. One of their assets is 300 acres of downtown London. They own the entire Mayfair area. It's probably two or three hundred city blocks, and it's all office towers and then hotels and what have you. They estimate that the Mayfair asset alone is probably worth $10 billion. His overall assets of the Duke are in excess of $20 billion. Uh, another example would be uh, Prince Hans Adam of Liechtenstein. Uh, once again, it's a small municipality he, uh, or, or principality. He owns almost all the real estate within it. He also owns a number of banks that are situated in Liechtenstein. 
which are notorious for money laundering and tax evasion around Europe. Within Liechtenstein, he is an absolute ruler. Uh, his uh, assets were estimated in 1999. There was a more comprehensive study. The estimated assets at that point were in excess of $5 billion. It's multiples of that now. Uh, probably there, there's a debate about which one of these European aristocrats is the wealthiest. In my mind, it's either the House of Orange Nassau, which is the royal family of Holland. Uh, there was teams of investigative journalists in the 1980s tried to figure out how much they actually owned. They were all stymied. Most of their assets are held in trusts and corporations in the uh, Dutch Antilles, which are completely out of reach of any sort of legal investigation. Uh, royal Dutch Shell is called Royal Dutch Shell for a reason. The family has a substantial stake in that corporation. And even if the, the minimum is it's probably around 5%, that alone would be worth $7 billion. Uh, that they're probably, once again, have assets in excess of $20 billion. They own 400,000 acres of real estate in Holland, and that's not a very big country. Uh, so it's, it's groups like that. It's the, you know, the Prince of Monaco. It is the, uh, the royal family of Sweden, etc. Uh, many of countries of Europe have never had any land reform. Uh, it's estimated there are 50 men in Spain that own a quarter of all the real estate in Spain. Uh, in Sweden, they're known colloquially as the 600. There are 600 aristocrats that own just about the entire country. And that pattern repeats itself in most West European countries, uh, Greece, Switzerland, etc. And these wealthy land barons uh, exert a profound influence on the government and on culture, uh, whereas they're perceived as being a, a Passe thing. They're a very massive and vigorous contemporary phenomenon that is powerfully reimposing itself. Yeah, we have this view that the democratic revolutions occurred and then these aristocratic institutions were destroyed, but actually, uh, yeah, while on the surface there seems to be a government and people vote, these same families continue to control the resources, uh, continue to profit off uh, owning, you know, large percentages of the land and definitely. Uh, controlling um, vast amounts, and I know, uh, like you mentioned, Royal Dutch Shell, but uh, I think the British royal family is in BP and Cargill Corporation, which is oil and wheat, you know? <laughs> it's impossible to really determine how much these families own. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of their assets, certainly the British royal family, you know, they're also the, uh, the royal family of Bermuda and Bahamas and the Isle of Man and several other notorious tax havens. And it is legally impossible to really access uh, what it is these people own. You hit that brick wall every time. It's a major crisis in Europe how much money is being laundered through these monarchical tax havens and how much tax evasion is going on in there. But there's, there's wide debates about how much they own. The key factor of these families is they are land magnates. Uh, there's estimates that the Albaz family of Spain own 2.5 million acres, which is who, you know, 4,000 square miles of Spain. And another thing about, you know, countries like England and Wales and Spain, uh, in England, there's no obligation to register your, your land ownership, yeah, only if it's been transferred outside the family. Over half of the real estate in England is not registered in any land registry. 85% of the land of Spain is not registered in any land registry. These old aristocrats still have these estates, and it's entirely voluntary whether or not they even want to register it uh, in any sort of public uh, registrar. 
Well, let's shift over to the United States or North America in general. I know you're Canadian. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, how does this work? Is it similar the way the oligarchy works uh, in North America as these royal families do in Europe? What you don't have in America are situations like Monaco and Luxembourg and Liechtenstein, where the person's actually the legal head of state. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, they, they sometimes they call Al Gore the Prince of Tennessee, but he's really not the Prince of Tennessee. You find all these princedoms around Europe where the the not only is the person the main landholder in the territory, he's actually the head of state. He signs the laws. Right. You don't have that huh. here. Uh, what you do have here is, of course, land magnates. You have a landed estate, which has a, an interest which is quite not parallel to capitalism and quite not parallel to democracy. Think of it this way. You know, from, from Bangor, Maine, down through New York City, New Jersey, Philadelphia, the, the built-up urban areas of the Northeast, you know, what is that real estate worth? There's 50 or 60 million people living there. Uh, there's probably at least a third of all those households are residential tenants. All of the commercial property, the, the shopping malls, the hotels, the industrial parks, that's all private property. And it's usually a lot of these old families own that. Uh, those people have very different attitudes towards the development of the West and the development of new real estate than other people would. Like someone like the Duke of Westminster, who owns, you know, a big, a quarter of downtown uh, London, he's already got vacancy rates. He is not interested in seeing a whole bunch of new property get developed around the outskirts of London. And what you'll find in city after city, particularly in the older cities, is that the wealthy land magnates are very hostile to new development. They don't want to see a whole bunch of new competition. They've already got vacant, run-down buildings. The last thing they want to see is major building blitzes in the city's perimeter. That's so much what... of the organized political opposition to urban sprawl and things like that comes from that constituency, hmm. although it will often take the form of, you know, local citizens fighting for green space or local citizens fighting to protect the wilderness or this fragile piece of ecosystem. This is a very much a materially motivated drive on the part of people who own large blocks of downtown New Jersey. Yeah, it seems to me like a lot of, of how this oligarchy operates, and even probably the reason why, you know, say, if you think about the Rockefeller family and Standard Oil, that they are able to monopolize a resource, or at least, uh, uh, you know, get so close to controlling a, a major interest of a resource that they can control the markets. Um, and a lot of what they do is spend their time eliminating competition. Uh, people like to think of that they're uh, well, they, you know, they have a vision of them as evil capitalists, and this is sort of the inevitability of capitalism, but they're not capitalists. They're using the government oftentimes to control the market so that they can have an advantage. Uh, is that... The key concept of fascist economics is cartel. Right. And there's certainly, it's not to be mistaken with, you know, a working class socialist calling for the nationalization of an industry. It has sort of similar features, but what Mussolini and a lot of other leading fascist rulers of Europe did was to cartelize the economy. So you would have the dominant firms in every industry would sit around a table. That's what Mussolini called the corporation. It's not the same thing we refer to today as a corporation. What he called a corporation was really a cartel. And you would have you know, the leading several 
you know, whatever, widget manufacturers would sit around and they would carve up the market. They would exclude competition, both foreign and domestic, and that's how things were going to be run. There was not going to be free enterprise. It is the cartelization of the economy. But in terms of monopolizing a key resource, the one that is most important is land. And what those who do own a lot of land do not want to see is a whole bunch of new land being thrown onto the market. And this applies not just to urban land magnates. It also applies to a lot of, you know, just basic farmers. You know, their farmers are always complaining that they're not getting enough money for their produce. Well, you know, the state of California, where you are, I think it's 45% of the land is owned by the federal government. And there's a lot of other land owned by other, you know, conservancies and state and county governments as well. They could throw a lot of that land into agricultural development. Mm -hmm. In Canada, it's absolutely absurd. You know, Canada has a higher degree of state ownership of land than Belarus. And a lot of this land could be thrown into agricultural development, but the existing agriculturalists have no interest in seeing that. And so once again, what appears to be a fight to defend the wilderness is actually a, a fight to restrict uh, land development right. for very obvious uh, mercenary motives. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, let's go back to uh, fascism a little bit. I mean, what is fascism? Sure. A lot of people forget uh, or don't even know. You know, in fact, I remember... Uh, you know, getting out of college a few years later, and, and my whole college education was all about uh, capitalism versus communism, the kind of Marxist, Hegelian dialectic stuff, and that's just the way that they taught how history operated. Uh, and then I got out of uh, school, a few years later, I was just thinking, you know, where did fascism even come from? Like, how did it develop? I was never taught any kind of a, a intellectual lineage, you know? It just seemed to pop up out of nowhere, and it seemed to be sort of created by... Uh, I don't even know really who, but these a lot of uh, looking into it now. A lot of these wealthy families seem to invest pretty heavily <laughs> uh, into. Definitely, if you go to my website, like www.ecofascism.com, I do a half of it is a series of book reviews. Mm -hmm. Oxford University came up with the handbook on fascism last year, and I condensed it down to 70 pages, and it's a sort of a supplemented condensation, but there's a review called Fascism 101. It's a bit limited. I've got probably about a dozen book reviews on fascism on that website. I suspect that that Oxford handbook is going to be the standard upper-year university textbook regarding fascism for many years to come. And it's a very limited document, but it was a breakthrough in a few regards. In one regard, of its 30-plus chapters, it never had a specific chapter on Germany. People often think fascism, you know, Nazism, swastikas, what have you. Uh, fascism was a pan-European movement and beyond. There's over 40 countries had large fascist movements during that period, if we take it from, like, 1918 to 1945. Germany was the ninth country to have a fascist government in Europe. You know, Italy and Yugoslavia and, you know, Austria and a lot of other countries went fascist before Germany did. Of course, when Germany did, uh, there was this major military mobilization and the rest is history. But fascism was definitely a pan-European movement, and what it was at its core was a counter-revolution against republicanism, democracy, capitalism, those sorts of things. And at its core was, without a doubt, the European aristocracy. 
Hmm. People think about Mussolini's famous, you know, march on Rome and the black shirts and that. He was already appointed prime minister by the king before that march took place. You know, the House of Savoy, which is one of the richest, oldest families in the world, was the royal family of Italy. They appointed Mussolini prime minister, and not only that, they fired him in 1944 as prime minister. And they survived the war until 1946. Italy voted to become a republic on, with American pressure. And uh, you know, Victor Emmanuel and his son sailed off to uh, uh, Lebanon with a, a yacht full of treasures. Uh, they were never punished for that, and they were some of the worst war criminals of the world. But in country after country, the, quite often it was the king leading the fascist movement. That was certainly the case in Romania and in Yugoslavia. Uh, Hitler had committed himself to the restoration of the Hohenzollerns as Kaisers. I've got a lot of information in there. My most recent posting is called The Persistent Profundity of Professor Mayar, who's a professor from Princeton University who wrote a lot about counter-revolution. And uh, when the Nazis first took power, January of 1933, it was a coalition government. There were more high-ranking aristocrats in that government than there were Nazi Party members. It was full of counts and princes and what have you. And moreover, they were more bloodthirsty than the Nazis were. They were more determined to have a massive purge and set up concentration camps, etc., than were the Nazis. The SS itself dominated by aristocrats. And in that essay, I list them all. I mean, there's, you know, dukes and archdukes and princes. These are the people who were running the SS. And that has gone down the memory hole. These people were never really brought to account. When the Cold War began, for better or for worse, the Anglo-American alliance sought to sweep a lot of this stuff under the carpet because they wanted, you know, the new enemy was the Soviet Union, and they made some, you know, devil's bargains with uh, a lot of the old European fascists. I mean, Franco was an ally of the United States, as were a lot of all the other sort of neo-fascist undercurrents. And that is how that stuff escaped attention. But... Without a doubt, one should view fascism as the reaction of what were becoming increasingly marginalized aristocrats to the urban industrial revolution. This goes way back. You know, there was a counter-revolution to the American Revolution. There were over 90,000 members of the colonies fought on the side of the British king. And they fled after the revolution. But the counter-revolution was a structured social movement that survived the American Revolution. Both the provinces of Ontario and the provinces of New Brunswick and Canada were created by counter-revolutionaries. And you will find within Canada a really deep anti-American streak, and it really dates back to that. Hmm. It's a really deep anti-Republican, anti-Democratic streak. William, give me a second just to say that you're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I'm speaking with, this morning with William Kay of ecofascism.com. Uh, very interesting history, actually, um, and very in-depth tracing the lineage, uh, the lineages of, uh, of modern-day tax-exempt foundations and uh, oligarchical families uh, and fascism uh, back through, actually, the last couple of thousand years. I really enjoyed the article on ancient Greece, actually, a great... Uh, yeah, that, <laughs> I'm amazed how popular that one was. It was a, just a great, um, succinct description, ones, yeah. Right. <laughs> So anyway, let's. Uh, I guess the aristocracy or the oligarchy is interested in fascism because it's a way of centralizing power uh, amongst the few. Is this what they're looking for? They're they're wanting to make sure that uh, 
uh, wealth doesn't get spread out among the people, but ma is maintained within the hands of the few? Well, there's a number of ways to approach it, but basically the aristocrats were being marginalized by the Industrial Revolution. Urbanization and industrialization were politically and economically marginalizing them. The big political struggle in the 19th century in Britain was, of course, imported grain. You know, the capitalists and the workers in the cities, they wanted cheap grain from wherever they could get it. They did not want to be beholden to the local agriculturalists to buy their, their grain. They could get it far more cheaper on the market. So they had a real market mentality to that, and eventually they won. And of course, this very much depressed agricultural prices and land prices and what have you. The House of Lords was the dominant parliamentary institution until the rise of the House of Commons. And that pattern is repeated around Europe. Every country in Europe had something like the House of Lords. It was called the Council of Grandes in Spain, which still exists, which is still constitutionally involved in government. Uh, you had heron houses in Austria and Germany, what have you. But as, as the population urbanized, as the people in the city became wealthy, increasingly they started to demand for democracy. They wanted control of the government. You know, this is... This is Pretty obvious history, but to the aristocrats, this meant being marginalized. They didn't want democracy. They already had control of the government, and they certainly did not want a free market in land, and they did not want a free market in agricultural products. So they were fundamentally opposed to capitalism, and they were fundamentally opposed to democracy. And the more the cities grew and the more the populations within the cities demanded republicanism at a minimum. Keep in mind, there are 10 countries in Europe that are still outright monarchies. They're not even republics. There are 35 countries around the world that are monarchies. Many of them are absolutist monarchies, like Morocco and Bahrain and, you know, Abu Dhabi and places like that. You know, the monarch is head of state and is actively involved in running the country. You'll find in some of the small principalities in Europe the same thing. Uh, they're way back there. Uh, one person estimated that if you made a list of the world's richest 100 people, you know, 30 of them would have crowns on their head. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is in the 21st century. We have to get past the thinking that these are somehow passe institutions. You know, the Sultan of Brunei and the King of Saudi Arabia, these are not instruments of the past. And the scary thing about Professor Maillard's writing is that this counter-revolutionary phenomenon, this war against democracy and capitalism, this war against the Industrial Revolution and urbanization, uh, is frequently on the offensive. And it's also frequently declared dead. That's why I begin that essay by saying, you know, environmentalism is Count Dracula rising from the coffin, because time and again uh, we declare the ancient regime dead, and then two decades later uh, they're back in power. But there's been several examples preceding the fascist wave, where this completely reactionary, arch-conservative wave sweeps across Europe, and they restore the power of, of the nobilities and the churches and what have you. You know, this happened definitely after the end of the Napoleonic period in the French Revolution. There was a period in the 1820s when, you know, the czars, the kings, what have you, they were more powerful than ever before. And then, you know, a generation later, and due to the, just the you know, inexorable forces of technological evolution, industrialization, and urbanization, they find themselves, again, very marginalized. And they surge back. And uh, so this is, there's a sort of like a pendulum swinging back and forth. Uh, the core of it is the landed interests. 
what I think the people, you know, and I'm talking, you know, the entrepreneurs and the, the general working population, what they really need is free markets in land. And this would dramatically lower the cost of housing, and it would dramatically lower the cost of agricultural goods, both food and textiles, and this would greatly benefit humanity. But, of course, those whose nest egg is a bunch of property, you know, square miles of Brussels, uh, that's the last thing they want to see. Well, let's talk a little bit then about these tax-exempt foundations. I mean, even just listening to NPR uh, right before this, this show, uh, you heard uh, a couple of foundations that helped to fund uh, what we just listened to right before the show. <laughs> and uh, so we really see that, that uh, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Pew Charitable Trust, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what is the function of, of these trusts? So the history of them, I understand that they basically, as soon as the income tax popped up, so did these foundations and wealthy people can give to these foundations. They're not paying a lot of taxes. Uh, and they have a controlling interest in the foundation, so the foundations uh, kind of do what these families bid them to do. And on, so on the one hand, you've got, um, you know, these families that are involved in big business and, and heavily involved in politics. And then on the other hand, they've got this other, you know, side of them, these foundations uh, that claim to be entirely altruistic and, and out to support the environment, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, how, how are these foundations tied up with this whole uh, sort of fascist evolution here? Well, the, a good place to start would be to go to the website of the Environmental Grantmakers Association of America. Uh, it lists, it has about 225 members. Almost all of them are a big American foundations. There's some notable absences in that list. But those foundations alone, you know, plus the, the, the other big ones that aren't on the list, like, you know, the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, the Pew Charitable Trust, etc., they're probably handing out, I would guess, between $1 and $2 billion U.S. a year to environmental organizations around the world. Uh, how many environmental groups are there around the world is uh, a matter of some debate. I would probably put it around 50,000 now incorporated environmental organizations. I did a recent study of just in the province of Alberta, there were over 300 here, and it has about 10% of the population of California. So you know what they're kind of talking about, all these little environmental groups around the world. Mm -hmm. A lot of them get funding from these uh, wealthy foundations. It wasn't just income tax. It was more inheritance taxes that uh, motivated the creation of these. Uh, Henry Ford had a choice. of he, His will had it out $600 million, but he'd already dispersed a lot of his uh, fortune to the Ford Foundation. As with Ted Turner and other big green funders, they're really faced with a choice of either giving this back to the man in taxes, mm -hmm. in estate taxes, or setting up some sort of foundation or trust as long as it complies with the existing laws. One of the beauties of the existing laws in America is these foundations are required by law to publish annual reports. They're also required by law to disperse 5% of their capital each year. However, many of them, like the Ford Foundation, their investments earn more than 5%, so they're actually just getting bigger and bigger as they go. In bad years, they take a dip. Uh, the Ford Foundation brags about having created the environmental movement. They put out a document called Sowing the Seeds of Revolution. That is a, a wild exaggeration, but they have played a major role. They're currently handing out around $500 million a year to all kinds of causes. And as with a lot of the other really far-sighted uh, foundations, 
they're increasingly dropping the term environmental green. They're dropping a lot of that. They're using phrases like capacity building and community development. But if you penetrate a little further, once again, it's all the same old eco groups getting the money. Uh, so basically, you're dealing with, in America, there's thousands of these foundations and trusts and what have you, but there's a core group of two or three hundred, Dukes, Hearst, Heinz, Luce, Disney, particularly the Rockefellers, even though they're not as relatively wealthy as they once were. Uh, they play a core role. In fact, their Rockefeller Family Foundation, not to be confused with the Rockefeller Foundation, actually created the EGA, the Environmental Grantmakers Association. But the main thrust of what those groups are into is restricting development, controlling development, uh, you know, having as much wilderness area as possible, etc., and also this you know, uh, a general broadside attack against industrial entrepreneurialism. There's a huge contradiction here. If you look at how these fortunes were originally made, time and time again, there were people who, you know, cared not a whit uh, for wilderness preservation and things like that and who were actually very pro-free enterprise. And that's not the case with, with Henry Ford, who himself was a very active Nazi. I don't know if people know that. He was a one of the most prolific disseminators of anti-Semitic literature in the history of the world. He was multiple times decorated by the German, the Third Reich. Now, that's Henry Ford. Uh, Henry Ford II was someone who spent almost all his time socializing with European aristocrats. And, of course, Bill Ford, who's now in charge of the empire, is a, has been quoted as you know, having dedicated his life to environmentalism. Uh, this was a long history there of you know, right-wing activism and environmentalism. Same could be said for the Pugh family, mm-hmm. uh, who, you know, J. Howard Pugh, once again... He was active in the Liberty Lobby. They were actively soliciting uh, U.S. general, Army generals, to overthrow the government. Uh, and that, that Pew Charitable Trust is probably handing out in excess of $100 million a year to environmental groups around the United States. What they are doing is they are forming a parallel government. They are forming a shadow government that is policing and regulating virtually all economic development in the United States. It is now impossible to build anything, either in Canada or the United States, without running a gauntlet of environmental you know, regulations and approval panels and what have you. Yeah, which uh, makes it a lot more expensive for the average Joe. Oh, well, they are dramatically increasing housing costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the main thing. I mean, it's very difficult to... Almost all cities in Canada now are surrounded by green belts, uh, where you cannot build... Uh, and this is, you know, as, as with California, there's vast amounts of vacant land. Uh, as an aside, another key component of this are massive agricultural subsidies, which in turn uh, keep a lot of marginal agricultural land, you know, out of the hands of other uses. And if they ever stop those subsidies, there'd be vast amounts of land thrown onto the market, and a lot of people are fully aware of that. You know, a lot of, you know, you want to get a good angle on, you know, the, the crimes committed by uh, environmentalists, talk to some of these big real estate development companies because they know, you know how much land is being driven up in cost as a result of wilderness you know, sequestration and as a result of farm subsidies and what have you. Uh, and take a look again at you know, sort of the American working population. How much of their budget goes to housing? That's what's bleeding them dry. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say something, and it slipped my mind. Ah. Well, another interesting thing that comes to my mind is that uh, over the last 50 years, at least here in the United States, where we used to have a system of small family farms, 
uh, in the last 50 years. Now, really, I think 80% of the family farms have gone out of business and uh, it's owned by large corporate interests. So uh, they have, um, at least in the United States, the corporate interests have really taken over from uh, that land ownership, uh, you, you know, of, of the agriculture business. My question is that there's still over 2 million farms in America. There's mm. still a lot of small farms in America. Uh, I'm of the view that uh, agriculture should not be subsidized, that they really mm. should allow that process of consolidation to go forward. What you do not want to find is, you know, a situation like Italy, which has more farmers than America, which people farm, you know, two acres. Uh, the country of Greece has almost a million farmers. Once again, you know, two to three acres, heavily subsidized, just backward, you know, hoe and rake agriculture. You know, people working away doing things that machines could do a lot more effectively. Uh, it does not bother me at all that there is farm consolidation in America. And that they are moving towards, there's an irrepressible move towards mechanization in agriculture. And that is a good thing because that gives us cheap food and cheap textiles. It does not bother me. We could all go back to hoe and rake agriculture and organic agriculture, and we'd all be, you know, out you know, working two acres of land, you know, growing radishes and what have you. No, that's not progress. Hmm. Uh, and it's, it's these subsidies that are restri- restricting that. The main thing is to, to throw that land open for development, uh, which simply is not happening. Another point is alternative energy. Mm-hmm. That, within movement politics, this is what's known as a built constituency. Because of environmental pressure, there's now a whole bunch of regulations and subsidies that favor wind power and solar power and, worst of all, biofuels. And if you take a look at those three forms of alternative energy, they've got a lot in common. One, they're you know, expensive and unreliable, and most importantly, they're all land hogs. It's an absolute crime against humanity that we are now burning food in the fuels of our car, in tanks of our cars. They are mandating biofuel regulations across the Western world, and then we're literally burning food. We're driving up the cost of food by doing this. We're guaranteeing uh, agriculturalists uh, a market for their products they could not sell otherwise. And... We're ending up with a substandard fuel that is not as volatile as gasoline, which is in abundant supply, and which, due to the fact that they cannot get rid of trace amounts of water in ethanol, is actually destroying people's engines. But look at wind farms and solar farms all across Europe. Those are being put up on these private estates. Mm. All of Europe is private property. And you'll see that I know in Ontario now they've got all these subsidies where they will, if you have enough land, you can throw up a solar farm or a wind farm and... The government will help integrate you into the overall electrical system, and they will, they're subsidizing solar power to the point of 15 times what it would cost to make that electricity from coal or nuclear. And it's, unless you own 40 acres, you really can't play this game. And so it's all these so small property owners. You have, to be, you have to be at least a farm owner around the main urban areas can throw up these little wind farms and solar farms. But it's, it's a great boon to landowners once again. And it's a, it's a completely ass-backward way, uh, way of making electricity. And we're all really going to suffer for this. We're ending up with very expensive and intermittent electricity when we have cheap, abundant resources that could produce it far more effectively. But it's a gift to landowners, that's for sure. 
All right. Uh, the time is now 9.39. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. This morning, I am speaking with William K. of ecofascism.com. We've got about 20 minutes left in the program, so how about taking some calls? Uh, 895-2448. We'll get you in the studio. And actually, uh, they've been thinking thinking ahead of me. we got some calls coming in. <coughs> All right. Good morning. You're on KZYX. Yeah, good morning. Um well, as one of those small local farmers, uh, uh-huh. I'd like to know how your guest who uh, advocates uh, for consolidation of agricultural lands uh, thinks that will benefit uh, local food production and a local food economy, uh, as opposed to having it consolidated into the hands of, uh, for example, Cargill and Walmart. Yeah, fair enough. William? Well... I don't really view uh, Walmart as, you know, the agent of the devil. I don't view uh, basically big businesses. Not all of them are evil. Most of them are providing a service to the public, and that is how they stay afloat. Uh, what I think we should move towards, I'm not some great promoter of local food and local produce. Mm-hmm. We should really promote a system, and I'm not some raving libertarian, promote a system whereby we get the cheapest food and the cheapest uh textiles and what have you as possible. I don't think we should be subsidizing small farmers uh, just to keep land out of development. You know, where the, far- where the small farmer is really getting screwed is by land use policies that are preventing them from doing other things with their land. You know, I wouldn't be, I don't want to leave anybody high and dry, but if we're going to cut away all these agricultural subsidies, I would also cut away all those land use policies. And a lot of those farmers would be looking out of their spread and saying, you know, I could buck this up into a subdivision. You know, I, I can how, how does that benefit uh, the, uh, the, the local economy? And how does that benefit uh, the, the, uh, the very uh, rich uh, uh, ag soils, for example, that provide food uh, that we all need to have it paved over and developed? Uh, in an economy that assumes that we can continue to grow uh, uh, ad infinitum. You could put... We live on a finite planet, my friend. You could put the entire urban and small town population land mass of the United States into the state of Wyoming and have room to spare. We are living on a big empty planet. You're living in a big empty state. It would be in the best interest of small farmers if we free them from any sort of land use restrictions, let them to do with their land what they want. And it's the best interest of the most people that if we really had free enterprise in land and free enterprise in agriculture, which would mean low-cost housing, low-cost food, it would mean a lot more employment. And uh, the downside is that a lot of marginalized farms are going to get consolidated. They're going to get pushed out of business. But if people own a you know nice track of land near a built-up urban area, don't worry, you ain't gonna starve. You sound like uh, uh, Earl Bucks. Get big or get out. Uh, sir, I, I do appreciate your call, but I I need to make room for other uh, other callers. Thanks All for right. your point of view. 
Um, yeah, William, one thing about it, too, the government often subsidizes uh, these the big agricultural businesses, and they've passed laws. I know that when hemp was made illegal, hemp was the primary cash crop for most farmers, and, and uh, after hemp was made illegal in the 30s, uh, that's when a lot of small farms went out of business here because they were deprived of their cash crop, and then that was bought up by the larger corporations um, that really lobbied Congress to make these changes, so it seems to me... I don't know what would happen if there was a free market, uh, you know, in, in as many cases as the subsidies help the, the little guy just kind of stay afloat. Uh, I think a lot of times they really help these big corporations kind of take over. Well, certainly that's part of the great travesty of it. Uh, in, in Europe, uh, the big landowners, of course, it's all based by acre, right? The bigger uh, spread you've got, the more subsidy you get. But there's very little incentive to move that land into other purposes. Um, I question whether or not it was just the uh, criminalization of hemp that led to farm consolidation in the United States during the 1930s. There was a lot of other things going sure. on. Sure, one factor. The main I'd say. cause of go ahead. Uh, just one factor, I'd say. There were a lot of other things going on for sure. The main thing is mechanization. You know, if you look at the modern farm machinery, uh, small groups of people can now farm huge amounts of land. It's sort of in, a, in cropland, what have you. And going back to just how much land there is in, in California, not only is there you know, vast forests and vast state land. A lot of the agricultural land in California and elsewhere is rangeland. It's pasture land. It isn't really even being put into intensive cropland. So what the, one of the main myths that people have to extract from their minds is this notion of land scarcity. You know, it's been said that you could put the entire population of the world in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the country of Japan is... Probably, if it's about 80% the size of California, four times the population, and probably a higher standard of living, too. Right. Uh, so don't really, we have to get away from this mentality that there's a shortage of land, and we, we can't throw open new land for urban development. We can't throw, you know, clear forests for, for agricultural land because we're, they're in short supply. They're not. Many states of the Union, New York State, is over half forest. You know, Canada, you know, the forested area of Canada is almost equal in size to the entire continental USA. It's a big, empty planet here. Well, we've got about 15 minutes left in the program, and the phone lines are lighting up, so let's take a few more calls. Okay. Uh, good morning. You're on the Thursday Morning Report. Uh, yeah, um, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a pretty interesting program until the guy started losing, going off his rocker here. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really highly disagree. I think... Possibly some of these, uh, what you call aristocrats or oligarchs, are funding your guests because it's like he's completely um, digging himself into a grave here. I don't know what he's, he's talking about, but um, I, I highly disagree with everything he said in the last 20 minutes. And, and I think uh, he doesn't really know the proper information. I don't know why he's on our program because everybody around here knows the truth about subsidies, to agriculture, and everything. And so it's like... What's he trying to say? I mean, I think he needs to, like, join the Tea Party or something because he's not really going to get any traction in our county. Well, what is the truth about subsidies? I'm waiting um, to know. The truth yeah. about subsidies is that nuclear power and big agribusiness is the reason why they're, they're highly subsidized by the government, and, and they put out food that's not even worth eating. Um, nuclear, nu- nuclear energy is unsafe. Everything he said is completely wrong and, and upside down. I don't know how he's even allowed to be, you know, voicing his opinion without any kind of someone else with any kind of facts countering him because... Well, that's why you're calling up, my man. Yeah, well, um, basically, 
I'm still waiting I for think that. Basically, he's lacking in truth. That's, that's what we're lacking in this world is a lot of truth. There's too much deception going on. And I think, you know, his whole purpose is his trip is to deceive people. Uh, well, I, I like his trip about the oligarchs in Europe and all that, but everything beyond that point is just total deception. Well, fair enough. Thanks for your point of view. Uh, can I make Thank a you. comment? Y- yeah, sure. Quote Lord Acton, Nothing is more disturbing than unearthing the pedigree of your own beliefs. Yeah, there you go. I, it is a controversial subject. It's hard to kind of uh, be really open-minded of it. I read an article one it. time about, you know, they took a bunch of granola eco-hippie types from California, and they ended up in a conference in the Northeast, and they ended up attending uh, some of the head offices of the Nature Conservancy and the Audubon Society, and they were knocked out. You know, suddenly they were in downtown Manhattan, and there were these gleaming floored offices full of yuppies running around. That's the nucleus of the environmental movement. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the ground-level granolas are completely duped. Well, that's what I, that's really, to me, the point of the show, is just to be able to, to bring out that, you know, a lot of the information that we're getting, just to understand that it's top-down. It's not like this has been a grassroots movement from the bottom up. And I think a lot of people have that yeah, feeling about it. And it is yeah. They have been deceived. All right. Well, plenty of calls coming in, so let's take another one here. Bring them on. All right. Good morning. You're on KZYX. Thank you. Um, just a couple of comments. As far as the big uh, farm movement goes, the uh, large consolidated farms, of course, the larger, more consolidation we have, the more we have GMO crops, the more we have chemical uh, uh, chemicals used in farming, um, which uh, I don't personally believe is healthy, and I think that's pretty much been proven. Um, As far as grouping solar, uh, wind, and biofuels all into one, I see biofuels as a transition fuel. I don't really think it's very, they're very practical. You can't run automobiles on uh, fry oil forever. And uh, turning... uh, Corn into fuel, we know, is a waste of energy. Well, that was a fiasco, right? I mean, yeah. George Bush tried that, and, and like 20 million people starved to death because of it. Yeah, yeah. It's so, a waste. It's still of, doing it's it. It's a waste. Yeah, but yeah. solar energy, I mean, if you, if you just think about it, if every, if every just building in the United States that was viable for solar exposure had, uh, had solar panels on it, first of all, the production would, of those of that, that type of technology would become much, much cheaper. Uh, we would eliminate the need for a lot of uh, petroleum. And, uh, and like anything, as you develop it more, it becomes more efficient, it becomes less expensive. I think to just uh, say that with a sweep of the hand that that's not viable is absurd, patently absurd. And uh, the gentleman who you have on your show seems uh, very... Uh, tied to corporate type of, uh, of uh, paternalism for our country, and I, I, I don't see that as as the as the future. I I think that we do have to seriously look at localization for food production. It certainly has worked in the past. Um, uh, population uh, certainly, at some point, we have to as a as a species on our planet have to look at control of population. We can't just keep 
you know, populating more than we're, than faster than people are dying off because that's a, then, then human species becomes like a cancer instead of a, of a steward of the planet. So there are, there are, there are things that your guest is saying that are worth thinking about, and then there are things that I, I feel that he's saying that are uh, dismissive, certainly dismissive and diminishing of people who are making a good effort to make a better planet. Those are my comments. All right, fair enough. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Well, William, uh, what do you think uh, in terms of uh, when we're talking about subsidies? I mean, because when the government subsidizes something, this this alters the market. And um, so there's no doubt that the government is subsidizing big corporate agriculture. And there's also no doubt that the government is heavily subsidizing uh, the uh, energy grid. And so, you know, if you remove those subsidies, then maybe development would happen in, in a different way. Um, Why not? categorically anti-subsidy. I mean, mm-hmm. to some extent, uh, the government's going to be involved in the economy. They're going to build roads and bridges. Uh, in Canada here, much of our electricity is state-owned. We do an excellent job. It's hard to really envision things like large hydro dams or nuclear projects where the government isn't going to be involved in some major way. I'm not a libertarian. I mean, every state, every region has to arrive at some sort of balance as to how much market, how much statism you want. I think the ultimate objective should be the prosperity of the people, and uh, in America and Canada, the biggest problems we're seeing right now are the restriction of economic development, uh, which is dramatically driving up housing costs and driving up food costs and driving up energy costs. Just a few points about that. I mean, this organic agriculture, this will come like a bombshell to some people, but the word organic Uh-oh. agriculture, <laughs> or the word <laughs> organic agriculture uh, was concocted by Walter Dare, who was the Nazi agriculture minister from 1933 to 1945. Uh, after the war, after he did seven years in jail as a war criminal, he rechanged his name to Carl Carlson. He was a leading advocate of organic agriculture. The Nazi government almost imposed organic agriculture on all of the Third Reich. Uh, they had a debate inside the cabinet. Uh, it was already when the war was started, and some of the real productivist elements voted it down, but over a third of the Nazi cabinet voted for mandatory imposing of organic agriculture right across the Third Reich. The British uh, Union of Fascists were dominated by organic agricultural activists. Their agricultural uh, specialist or shadow cabinet member, Jorian Jakes, uh, then went on after the war to become the editor of Mother Earth magazine, which was a product of the British Soil Association, which went on to become the the leading uh, organ of the organic agricultural lobby. But it's a very land-intensive, anti-industrial, anti-capitalist way of, of getting agriculture food out of the ground. And it's a really leads to expensive, misshapen, unhealthy food. But uh, no doubt about it, there's a strong overlap between European fascism and organic agriculture. That is indeniable. Well, fair enough. Just a few minutes left in the program. Let's try to take one more call here. Sure. Good morning. You're on KZYX. you have a question for our guest? Yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. Um, it was interesting to hear him say that he wasn't uh, entirely opposed to subsidies for big projects. Seems to contradict a little bit of the earlier stuff, but I'm curious about his, his concept of nuclear energy as being inexpensive if you take away big subsidies. 
And if you allow people, I mean, I suppose you could make it inexpensive if you could just dump that waste into the Colorado River or somewhere or, you know, without massive subsidies for dealing with, you know, the next 25,000 years that you got to watch out for that waste. And if you believe in the free market, you really would have to take away the subsidy where the government caps the insurance liability for right. you know, zero infinity explosion. You have a nuclear power plant that wipes out New York City. How, you know, zero infinity doesn't stay zero infinity when something happens. It goes to be catastrophic, you know. I was going to graduate school in Pennsylvania, and, you know, it's pretty hard to avoid the whole three-mile island thing. And you can say, okay, it didn't cost much. But it wouldn't have taken much more for it to be Chernobyl. And, yeah, the nuclear industry has this little consortium set up where they have this minor amount of money that they use to pay for any potential problems. But all the big numbers are capped by the government. And the level of subsidy there where you don't allow the market to determine the risk allows that industry to be competitive in a way that it never could be if you allowed the free market to run that industry. And I would like to hear his right. comment on that particular and, issue. And can I add to that, uh, just just recently with the BP oil spill, it was the same thing. There was a cap on their liability. So why do they care if they dump you know thousands of gallons of oil if there's a $75 million cap on their liability? You know. Uh, anyway, William, do you have a response to that? Well, point number one, all of the nuclear waste generated in the last 55 years of civilian nuclear energy could be put on one football field about 10 feet high. We're not going to dump it in the river. We're going to bury it in mines. Every form of energy has its hazards. You know, coal mining. Look how many people die in coal mines, etc. Look at the, the cost uh, uh, in terms of damage to birds by wind power and all these other things. There's no free lunch as far as electricity goes. But... <clears throat> You'd have a hard time uh, convincing me that nuclear energy is a particularly dangerous form of electricity. There's actually been very few accidents, and it's not a great problem to transport and bury uh, nuclear waste. This is something that America can do, and America can have the cheapest electricity in the world if they want to. It's literally, you know, 3 or 4% the cost of electricity uh, from nuclear than from wind. Personally, I'm a great promoter of coal-fired electricity, which, from which America gets about 50% of its electricity. Uh, here in Canada, here in Alberta, we've got literally thousands of years' supply of coal, and it's a very inexpensive way to make electricity, and there's really uh, no downside to it. I believe global warming is a hoax, uh, etc. You know, we've got to get away from the mentality that evil petroleum, evil coal, these are things that have been installed in our minds by the mass media. Well, we can talk about how big and powerful these these nuclear lobbies are. If they were really so powerful, you wouldn't have had a nuclear freeze. It's a, you know, it's countries like France, they get 80-90% of their electricity from nuclear power. Are they a bunch of dummies there? Are they having a whole bunch of accidents and uh, radiation problems? No. Well, William, we've got about a minute left. Do you have just a few concluding remarks and maybe tell people a little bit about the website again? Yeah, the website is www.ecofascism.com. Basically, the thesis is that environmentalism is not a movement of the people. It's a movement of a very narrow elite. It is primarily situated in Western Europe, 
What they are doing is effectively conducting an economic warfare campaign against the developing world. Their primary target is the North American economy. We have an abundant supply of fossil fuels and land and water on this continent. We could grow many times larger than we are now. We should get away from thinking there's limits to growth. And we should try to have economic policies that are in the best interest of most people. And that means, you know, very low levels of unemployment, very cheap housing, cheap food, etc. All right, William, we're, we're bumping right up on 10 o'clock. But thanks a lot for being with us. My pleasure. I totally www.ecofascism.com. Thank you very much. You bet. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, there you have it. I knew that show was going to be a little bit controversial. Um, I was interested in the in the uh, the uh, use of the foundations by the oligarchy, and then we got into some other stuff. So I hope you all found it uh, a very interesting conversation, to say the least, and uh, try to remain open-minded. Anyway, that's what we're all about here at KZYX. I want to thank everybody for listening to the Thursday Morning Report. I've been your host, Doug McKenty. You've been listening on KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, K201HR 88.1 FM for Bragg. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio, streaming on the web at kzyx.org.